Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. And the first Sunday of the new year, for those at home as well, for the Sunday of the new year is not only the first Sunday of the new year, obviously, but it's also an anniversary for me, um, actually, because I began to preach from this pulpit as lead pastor on the first Sunday of the year. And this Sunday is noteworthy because I begin my 15th year. I can't believe it's 15 years. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Um, you could throw stuff at me later. It's totally up to you. But 15 years, it's just, it's just unbelievable. So um, all the pastors here take, take our responsibility as, as pastors seriously. And we also know and take it as really as a great privilege to serve you um, as pastors of this church, all, all five of us. So praise God for that. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Um, this little but noteworthy book. We've entitled it Gospel Joy. Gospel Joy. Uh, we'll see again rejoicing in the Lord in chapter 4, um, verse 4. We'll get there in a minute, but we know that joy comes from the gospel. His name is Jesus. So that's where we're at, Philippians chapter 4. We're in verses 1 through 7 this morning. Let me read to you the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. One of those verses we talked about before. Um, that is just one of those known verses in Philippians that everyone knows and everyone loves. And today, hopefully, we'll put it in some context as we go through this, these verses today. So after Paul, uh, remember, he commends the church in chapter 1 for their partnership with him in, in the spreading and defending and declaring the gospel. He tells them in chapter 1, verse 27, to live lives worthy or a, life, a manner worthy of the gospel. And he gives us some insight of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. If you remember, he also gives us examples of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And he gives us the great example, and his name is Jesus in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He is our great example. What he's saying is, not that we are to be like him in our death as an atoning sacrifice, but we are to recognize Jesus in the gospel and what his life and his death really means and recognize and allow the gospel to produce in us things like humility, things like unity, sacrificial giving, and let the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the grave, motivate our sanctification. That's why he says in chapter 2, Verse 12, beloved, as you always obeyed, work out your salvation. That is, in light of the gospel, in chapters 2, 5 through following the gospel. He says, now in light of that, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
And then in chapter 3, as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks, we see in chapter 3 a very clear gospel message, a very clear gospel reality when Paul adds up all his accomplishments, all his hard works, all his human accomplishments as a means of being right with God. And he looks at that and all that he's accomplished. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, which if you don't know this verse, mark it in your Bibles, at least know where to find it. He goes on to say that after adding up all my accomplishments, all the things I've done, verse 8, I count everything as loss, singular, a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, as excrement, in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, to have a union with him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because you can't, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, all my self-righteousness adds up to nothing, but the righteousness of Christ being made right with God through the work of Jesus is what really matters, is the only thing that matters. And then Pastor Chris did a great job last week wrapping up chapter 3 and bringing us to chapter 4, verse 1, which, if you mark your Bibles up, mark up verse 1. That's a transitional verse. We'll see that in a minute. Um, Paul is going from this great theological truth of chapter 3 of the gospel, of what the gospel really is. He goes from, from, from gospel theology, important truths about God, to, to practicality. How important those truths of the gospel are really are to penetrate and we are to live our lives under these, these gospel truths. He does that in almost all of his letters, right? He gives, he gives gospel reality, gospel truth, who Jesus is, and then he says, now in light of that, live this way. You, you and I, we'll see this even more next week, you and I need to understand that what you believe about God, what you think about God, how you think about God affects the way we live. Even if you're an atheist, how you perceive or even you deny him affects the way you live. When we're not worshiping the one true God, we're chasing after uh, and worshiping other gods. God created us as worshipers. Whether it's the God of relationships, the God of sex, money, looks, and the list goes on and on. But for Paul, it was false worship was his religion, thinking that he can gain righteousness, gain access, be reconciled to God through his own merits. But all that changed, right? We talked about the exchange, that Paul exchanged his sin, his self-righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. And Paul wraps up chapter 3 after this beautiful description of the gospel, saying that even though his salvation is secure in Christ, he wants us, he wants them, he wants us to press on. Look at verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. To press on in our pursuit of Christ. And he wants us to make sure we hold true to what we have already obtained. Verse 16. How do we do that? Well, Pastor Chris mentioned last week. How do we hold true? How do we press on? Chris mentioned a couple of things. He said, there are examples to imitate. Verse 17, join in imitating me. Keep your eye on those who walk according to my example. Follow those who are leading the way. 
There are examples to imitate. There are enemies to avoid. Verses 18 and 19, they're enemies of the cross, whether they're Judaizers or there's some form of hedonism. Avoid those enemies. And then verse 21 and 20, 20 and 21, there's an eternity to embrace. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 1, again, that transitional verse. And look what Paul tells us there. He says, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, in the Lord. Stand firm. In fact, that's the same military metaphor he used in chapter 1, verse 27. What it, what it means is, is when you're on guard and you have a, a hostile uh, uh, people toward you and there's enemies and there are struggles and there are problems, you are standing in the midst of an onslaught of issues. Stand firm, soldier. So as we get to chapter 4, verse 2, Paul's going to show us how to stand firm. He's going to show us some things we must do and some things we must avoid. He's going to give us all kinds of admonitions, imperatives, commands on how to stand firm. So he went last week from, from pressing on, right, from holding to what you already obtained, being mature to what you already have, pressing on. Now he's saying stand firm. Press on before, now stand firm in the Lord. That's where we're at. We're standing firm. Three things. If we want to hold to, hold to uh, how to hold firm, to stand firm, or standing firm, we need to know these things. Number one, we need to agree and assist one another toward unity. We need to rejoice and be reasonable to everyone. And third, we need to pray and peace will guard our lives. Okay, so those three things, that's where we're going this morning. So, Open your Bibles again if it's not open as we look at verse 1, 2, and 3. Now, we've been saying over and over that the, the, the theme of Philippians is joy. We'll see it again today. That's the theme, joy, gospel joy. But if I were to add a, a second theme, maybe a, a close second even, I would say one of the themes, one of the close second themes of Philippians is unity. Paul stresses unity. No more than six times he encourages them to abandon their, their selfishness and to be unified together. In verse 9, he says that they are to love one another, that their love would abound more and more. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy uh, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Count others more significant than yourselves. Over and over we see this unity and stressing unity in the church. It was important to Paul. It is important for us as well. The Philippians were no strangers to conflict. We are no strangers to conflict. Conflict happens. Period. There's only one relationship where there's no conflict. Father, Son, and Spirit. Other than that, conflict happens. And if left unattended, it can really disrupt unity and cause lots of problems in a church. Conflict happens. I know that because you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And I can be very selfish at times. 
And conflict is inevitable, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a church, whether it's in our own home, whether it's in our workplace, it's inevitable. The issue is not really about the conflict, it's about how you handle the conflict. It could be handled constructively with positive results, uh, bringing greater intimacy, strengthening relationships, clarifying issues constructively. Or we handle conflict sometimes destructively. Where, where sinful behaviors really show their ugly face, like gossip and hatred and violence and all kinds of selfishness. James, the Lord's half-brother, mentioned in his epistle that we fight and we quarrel with one another because we have selfish desires. We don't have and we don't get because we are asking for the wrong motives, mostly just selfishness. Whatever was going on in this church, as we will see with their disunity, we're not sure. But one thing we are sure, it reached the ears of the Apostle Paul while in prison. Probably Epaphrodites, who brought him the gift while he was in prison, maybe brought him the news about this conflict. And he's going to address it. He's going to address it. Uh, uh, up to now, Paul has mentioned multiple times about unity in a general sense. But now, he calls them out. Verse 2. <laughs> I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine sitting in the congregation and maybe Epaphrodites brings this letter from Paul and says, hey, we're going to gather at 2 o'clock and hear what Paul has to say. And, and he opens up this letter and he starts to read it. And, and there's two women on two separate sides of the churches all with their little crowds around them. They both give a hearty amen. He who began a good work, preach it, Paul. Both both with tears in their eyes as the, the, the Christ hymn of chapter 2, the beauty of that, and, and, and they both give a hearty amen about beware of false teachers, get them, Paul. And then all of a sudden, chapter 4 starts and it says, oh, and by the way, Yodia and Syndicate. You can see them going down in their chair, right? Could hear a pin drop. Paul calls them out by name. And someone's like, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. He just said it. They're ready to crawl under their seat. I don't think Paul was trying to embarrass these two women who were fighting, but he doesn't hesitate to deal with it head on as well. He doesn't deal with it. He deals with it head on. And most commentators will, will, and I agree with them, that whatever the argument was, whatever the, the lack of unity was in the church between Yoda and Syndicate, it was probably personal in, in nature, maybe just personal conflicts, um, personalities rubbing each other the wrong way. The reason why they say that is because if it was theological, Paul would have dealt with it. He already did in chapter 3 about some of the theological problems that were going on with the Judaizers. If it was theological, he would have, he would have said something, I'm sure. If it was um, not only theological, but if it was, had something to do with immoral behavior, Paul's known to call people out about their immoral behavior, but he doesn't mention anything here. But whatever it was, it was obviously hurting the church. It was, it was causing disunity and, and hindering unity and the effectiveness of the church. And the first thing I want you to notice that Paul uh, tells these women, probably influential ladies in the church, maybe even part of the first church plant, they were to first take personal responsibility. He appeals to them personally. I entreat, I implore, I beg, both Yodia and I entreat Syndicate. Entreat, parakleo, come alongside, strongly encourage. 
Paul's exhortation, actually in, 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 the, in the original language, in the, in the, it's kind of clumsy in the Greek because he's actually calling out both of them. I think he, he, want, he, he wants to be even-handed over the situation. But he wants to urge them both in their dispute with equal firmness. I'm, I'm, I'm urging you, I am also urging you to be agreeable in the Lord. The word agreeable, to be like-minded. It involves not only the intellect, but, but it also incorporates the will and the emotion and affects the attitude. An attitude. If you want unity, you have, an, you have to have an attitude of, of humility and servanthood. Just like Jesus, right? Imitating the humility of Jesus, who did not look out for his own interests, we talked about this, but for the interests of sinners like you and I, and died on the Roman cross for our sins. So I entreat you both, I implore you both, to what? Agree, have the same mind, be humble in the Lord. In the Lord. In other words, you remember, ladies, you have been given much grace. You should extend it. You've been given much mercy in the gospel. You should extend it. You've been given, forgiven much in the gospel. Therefore, you should extend it. You should have the mind of Christ in the Lord. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense, I think, which Paul is saying, listen, stop on your own personal agendas and submit to the lordship of Christ. Have the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ. Have the, have the, uh, in other words, it's the sphere of his lordship over you. You don't have to agree on every detail, right? Not uniformity. But unity around Jesus and the gospel. I've said this several times. We, we, don't, we don't create unity. We don't form it. We join it. His name is Jesus. Not only are they to take responsibility, look, but they're supposed to have accountability. Look what he says in verse 3. I ask you, true companion, help these women. When I, obviously, they couldn't handle it. Things were going on, I believe, for quite a while, and things were not getting resolved. But Paul calls out a true companion to help them. What does that tell us, family? It tells us that we as a church family are to help one another. We are to assist one another in the reconciliation process if there has been a lack of unity. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, the apostle didn't lay out a precise remedy for Yodia and Syndike, but it handed it over to the church family in Philippi. He gave them tender guidelines and was diplomatic and encouraging, end quote. It was a public issue. Paul deals with it publicly and says to others, get involved. Now, interesting, the word true companion, if you have an NIV, uh, you have loyal yoke fellow. It's a word uh, made up of uh, a, a word, a, a yoke, a crossbar, what you place on, a, on an oxen to plow the field. And I think many commentators either think it was a nickname or, uh, or possibly, which I kind of lean toward, I think it was actually somebody's name. Paul is calling out an individual and kind of using a pun on the man's name like he did with um, Philemon. I don't know if you know the story, but the, the, the little epistle, Philemon, is about a, 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 a man by the name Onesimus, if you know the story, but Onesimus means useful. And he kind of used a play on Onesimus' word. He's useful. Useful is useful. And I think what Paul is saying, listen, um, uh, if you have an ESV, it's um, true companion or yoke fellow. He's saying, do what your name is. Get involved. Join link with these women. Be a, a yoke fellow with these women and help them to agree. 
Sort of like Barnabas, remember, son of encouragement? He actually was the son of encouragement. And he's calling this man to come alongside. Can you imagine being that guy? You're like, ah. Ah, really? Me? Everybody looking at you, you know, after everyone stopped staring at the two ladies, they're looking at you like, what are you going to do? Like, oh, all right. All right, I guess I got to, they've been fighting a long time, Paul, but okay, you just put me out there. I'll be the peacemaker. I'm not going to meddle, but I'm going to be a gospel reconciler, right? Notice that it's not just the church's issue. It's everyone's business. Paul calls the whole church. Not just them, you'll see in a minute. Everyone. These ladies were not just ladies in the church. Women had a, 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 first of all, if you remember the story of Acts 16, women were a major part of the planting of this church. Lydia, a seller of purple, one woman was uh, cast out, demons were cast out of her. Uh, Women had a major role, as they do today, in the churches all over the world for centuries. But these ladies, look, have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Mature women. Huge influence. Paul said, listen, we can't, you can't stand firm in the Lord when there's that kind of disunity. You you can't stand firm in the Lord when you're infighting one another. You've labored in the gospel together. And he goes on, he says something very interesting here. He says, together with Clement, somebody else, so you two ladies work at it together. We're going to call this brother here to help you and Clement to help you and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know what he means by that? He's saying, look, all y'all in the church are recognized by God. He knows you. He loves you in a salvation way. His grace is in your life. His love is upon your life. What what a great way to begin working things out together to recognize we are both in Christ, that we are both have union with Jesus. We are both, what, children, brothers, and sisters in Christ. Let's start there. Let's start there. We're on the same team. I tell married couples this all the time. Remind myself, right? We're in the same jersey. We're on the same team. We're not enemies. We both received forgiveness. We both received mercy and grace. So let me ask you this morning as we move on. Are, are you one who are, uh, that, that, that is interested in unity, that will work tirelessly for unity? You'll maybe assist others when you see there's some discord going on? Uh, are you filled with grace and humility, able to help possibility of divisions in the church that only damage and destroy from the inside and really make havoc of our effectiveness in the gospel? Are you that kind of person? Many of you are. And we've experienced a lot of unity in this church. So I don't want, I don't want to walk away from this text saying there's all kinds of disunity in church. That's not the case. I think for us, honestly, for the, most of us, this is just an affirmation of remaining strong in union together as we move forward, okay? So, assist and uh, agree and assist with one another toward unity and then rejoice and be reasonable to everyone. Look what it says, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. As if Paul is saying, (laughs) I'm gonna say this over and over multiple times in this letter because to maintain this joy is so hard, but it is so important, foundational. If we wanna stand firm in the Lord, you have to rejoice, in fact, the, the word here, rejoice, is in the present, Greek present, a continuing action, 
active voice, the, the one who, who is uh, the, the, um, the subject, produces the action. In other words, Paul says, as you keep on keeping on, rejoice. Choose to rejoice. Paul is, again, we talked about this before, as he leaves themes, as he's, as he's talking and exhorting people, he centers all this around joy. And again, centered on the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoice in your circumstances. They may really be bad. People change. Situations change. Bad news comes and goes. But the Lord remains the same. You can't always change your circumstances. But one thing we can rejoice in is the, is the, is the arms, the everlasting arms of God that hold his children. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, be joyful always. It's imperative, actually. It's a command, not a feeling. It's really more about the choice we make and the attitude we have rather than the right emotions that we feel. When things are falling apart, we ought to run to the rock of our salvation and rejoice in the Lord. You know, the Lord chooses what we go through. We choose how. And our attitude many times is dependent upon us. Good to remember that when we talked about this before, and I don't want to get into it now, but happiness is situational and often superficial, but joy is why sustained and secure. You may not have nothing to, re, to, to, to be happy about, happenstance, that's going on with you today. But joy can come in trials and circumstances as we bow our knee and we hear the promises of God. Lord, I know that your love for me is eternal. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. And I know that no matter what happens, what happens to me, you'll give me the strength to get me through it. It has to go through your sovereign hand. Paul's no stranger to suffering. Paul's no stranger to hardship. He's writing this letter, if you remember, he's in prison. But he has a close friend, and his name is Joy, the joy of the Lord. That's the choice we must make. Bruce Barton says this. It seems strange that a man in prison would be telling a church to keep on rejoicing. But Paul's attitude teaches us an important lesson. Our inner attitude does not have to reflect our outward circumstances. End quote. Joy wells up within. Not external, it's internal. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Paul is commanding us, or God is commanding us, to walk around skipping and dancing and singing and removing everything or, or, or the reality being removed from our lives. Like we're not really dealing with what's going on. We're just going to hide under a rock. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you could, all of us as believers in Christ, can, can even, in, in, even in arduous, difficult times, can drink from the well of the gospel. And that will produce joy. Even when we struggle, even when we're hurting, even when there's darkness, because the joy of the Lord is our strength, comes from the nature of God. If we're rejoicing in God, the character of God, the work of God, the gospel, we can stand firm. And look what else it says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness, every translate, I mean, every, every English translation of that Greek word is different. It's hard to translate. Uh, it means considerate, gentleness, Large-heartedness, fair-minded, charitable, sweetly reasonable, I read somewhere. It involves the willingness to put your personal agenda aside 
and show gentleness and reasonableness and kindness to others. And how important is that when there's conflict, right? I mean, everyone knows someone who was born to argue. No matter what you say, they have an argument. Gentleness breathes grace into the situation, into the tension. This word is opposite of contentiousness or quarrelsome or aggressive. I heard a story about a father who has spent, you know, four hours enduring long, grueling, rude line, rude clerks in a line at the, at the you know, just dealing with insane regulations at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Finally, after four hours, four and a half hours, his son, five-year-old son, was uh, just did such a great job. He said, we're going to go get you a toy. He goes to the toy store, get, grabs a baseball bat for his son, asks the clerk, uh, you know, that it was a gift, tells the clerk it was a gift, and the clerk says, is it cash or, or check, credit? What? He said, cash, really nasty. No sweetness there at all. And he said, ma'am, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I'm really sorry. I've been, I spent the entire afternoon at the motor vehicle bureau. bureau. And the woman said, the clerk said, listen, do, do, you want, do you want me to gift wrap this or are you going back? <laughs> Sometimes we do that, right, with our words. We smash people with our attitudes. And we say, well, it's the truth. And there's no reasonableness to it at all. We do that. We sin against our brothers and sisters. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Great verse to memorize, right? What do people think of you? An arguer? Someone who is gentle? Or someone who is gruff? Someone who is abrupt and abrasive? Or are you someone who brings to the conversation sweet reasonableness? It's a good question. Don't ask the person next to you now. Wait till you get home. <laughs> now, we're not talking about just dismissing truth, right? Sometimes things need to be said, like Jesus. But we, as professing Christians, should have an attitude and a mindset of Christ and be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Look what it says. The Lord is at hand. Some of your Bibles say the Lord is near. It's a tough, it's a tough, that word at hand or near could mean both space and time. It depends. It may mean that the Lord is close. He's near. He's present. He's, he, he's seeing what's going on. He's concerned. He loves you. He's available to come t- to your aid as you pray, as our next verse tells us. Or it may mean, and some commentators believe, it has to do with the Lord's return, that his return is imminent. It, it could come at any time. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Either way, they're both biblical. The Lord is near. The Lord will help. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And the Lord's return should also make changes and we should live differently. Encourage one another to resolve differences, rejoicing and being gentle for the Lord is coming. Both are theologically correct. And Paul may have meant for them, maybe that word, there's some ambiguity. Maybe he maybe meant both of them. Maybe he said, look, the Lord is present. He can help you, but the Lord is coming back. I don't know. But I think both are true and both are helpful. So standing firm in the Lord occurs when we are agreeing and assisting one another in unity. We, are, we choose to, to rejoice in the gospel. Standing firm when our attitude is one of reasonableness and knowing that the Lord is near and his return. That's how you stand firm. But lastly, pray. Do not be anxious about anything. 
Family, unfortunately, I'm here to tell you, and I'm just a mailman delivering the news. It's an imperative. It's a command. The command to have joy is now the command to not be anxious. Being anxious is a problem today. I'm just going to be honest with you. It'll rob you of your joy. It'll cause hostility and anger. And it can really disrupt your life, both emotionally, spiritually, and physically. This word here, anxiety, is a, the Greek word actually is a compound word, which means it's made up of two words. One, one of the words has to do with being separate and divided, being torn in different directions. The other word has to do with your mind. So basically it's saying your mind is torn and being ripped and torn in different directions. The old English word for, for worry comes from, the word, from, from, the, uh, from a word that means to strangle and to choke. That's what happens when we're racked with worry and anxiety. Now, Paul is not talking about just good, conscious concern. Actually, the verb here that's used, miraminao, Paul used it in other places in a favorable manner. Chapter 2 of verse 20 of Philippians, Timothy was genuinely concerned. That's the same word. That was favorable. Paul talks about having concern, Mermenaho, over the churches in 2 Corinthians 11. So there's a great difference between about being anxious about the future and being concerned about the future. It's not wrong to be concerned about your children's future, your children's education, to put smoke detectors or get insurance. Paul's not saying don't show any interest and just have this Kesara attitude. Healthy concern anticipates things that will come our way and actually preparing will actually eliminate worry. So the problem of anxiety doesn't mean we live an unconcerned, aloof life. Proverbs 14, 15, a simple man believes everything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. Proverbs 16:9. in his heart a man plans his course. Nothing wrong with that, but the Lord determines his steps. However, however, oftentimes negative anxiety indicates a severe, unhealthy, excessive concerns about things that are out of our control. And when we're out of our control, we are filled with worry and filled with anxiety. That's negative anxiety. Such worry could be about food or drink or clothes, your lifespan, your future, many things Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, about not being worrisome or anxiety for tomorrow. The cure for this negative anxiety, Paul says, is prayer. So, so let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just share with you, lovingly, carefully, as I said, our culture, our day, 2021, as we start this new year, we are growing more and more anxious as a people. We just are. You can blame whatever you want. News, media, uh, any kind of online, whatever it is, we are just growing more and more anxious as a people. And many of you already, I know, are anxious about the future. Now, when we're anxious about things, I am all for, and many of you know, getting counseling, 
Uh, some people I know have been on medication, maybe just to help them to deal with their emotional uh, turmoil in their lives. I'm not denying any of that. But for believers, the end game, the end goal, our intention is to cast all our anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for us, right? To trust him in all and in every circumstances of our lives. If you look at it that way, this negative anxiety, negative worry, is, is really a form of paganism. Functional atheism, some call it. Because we're living as if God doesn't exist, that he's not in control. That he's not the all-sovereign ruler over the world. Again, Bruce Barton writes this, Worrying, negative worrying, is bad because it is a subtle form of distrust in God. When believers worry, they are saying that they don't trust that God will provide and they doubt that he cares or that he can handle their situation. It leads to helpless, hopeless feelings that causes them to be paralyzed, end quote. That's why the Apostle Paul says pray, but in everything by prayer. The cure. When we worry, we're really saying that, God, my problems are too big for you. My, my problems are actually bigger than your promises. Rick Warren, worry is the warning light that God is not really first in my life. At this particular moment, because worry says that God is not big enough to handle my troubles, end quote. Now, now Paul is a realist. He knows that just I'm just going to determine not to be worried anymore. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't will your way into not being Riddled with worry or anxiety. It just doesn't work that way. The path to inner peace must pass through prayer. And not just the big things. Look what it says. Small things, needs, wants, worries, everything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. Made known means to be in the presence of God. Prayerlessness assures anxiety, but prayerfulness can abolish anxiety. This idea of prayer is, is, is just so you know, it, prayer, prayer is not only just simply talking to God, although that it is, it is an act, a humble act of adoration and worship. That's why we tell you, you've heard it from this pulpit, we don't pray to saints and to people because it's an act of worship. We ought to worship one God, the true and the living God. We pray to God. It's an act of worship. It's, it's, it's we're, 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 we're declaring our, our complete dependency upon the God of creation. Our dependency, and we recognize that we have access to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To pray is to focus on his greatness, his character, his attributes, his mighty works. And most importantly, in particular, the gospel. It's amazing how when you meditate on the magnitude of God, it will put your problems into proper perspective. I think it was Martin Luther said, pray and let God worry. <laughs> Supplication, sharing problems. If you're worried or you're anxious, let God know what's pulling you in different directions. Spell out what's strangling you. And here's the key. And you all know it. You got to leave it there. Right? I'm not the only one that gets on my knees when I'm anxious, and gives it all to God, and then when I get up, I take it right back. But we ought to be thankful too. Look what it says. Not, not just make our prayers and requests be known to God, but do it with thankfulness. Do it with thankfulness. 
Can, can, can I give you just two things of how we, you and I, no matter what we're going through, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what, you can always be thankful for two things, at least. I'm just going to say two. Number one, you can always be thankful that the wrath-absorbing, substitutionary and atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I think we must never lose the wonder of the gospel. The more we excuse or explain our sin away, the more we lose the wonder of the gospel. When we grow in our understanding of the real stench and heinousness and treasonous our sins are to God and how God is under no obligation to forgive anyone, and yet in the gospel he truly, completely forgives and how we are to accept that gift and how that can make us grateful and thankful of this unearned, freely given mercy and grace that God has given us in the gospel. Eternal life, eternal joy, eternal rescue from the eternal wrath of God. No matter what's going on in your life, you could be thankful for that. It doesn't take the pain away of the circumstances by any means. But it will bring joy and thankfulness to the heart. The second thing is, as believers in Christ, is we can be 100%, 100% assured that our loving and faithful Father is working out all things for our good and His glory. The unchanging promise He gives to His children. And that too can change our perspective. You know, when we pray... 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 is a great verse. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Great verse. 1 Peter 5, 7. But 1 Peter 5, 6 is this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. In other words, what Peter is saying is humbly... Recognize that, yes, we are to pray and we are, to, we are to, to let God know what's on our hearts and what's causing us worry and anxiety, but there's a sense in which we want to know what his will is for us and we can accept it as we, as we uh, 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 come underneath the mighty hand of God. There's submission. There's submission. We, we make our request known to God, but we want to walk in his will for our life. And there's a sense of where that anxiety and that worry can be released from our hearts when we are walking in the will of God and receiving and accepting that which God has for us. So once we make a commitment to unity, once we work out personal conflicts in the sphere of Christ's lordship, once we make a choice to be joyful in all circumstances in God's love and God's sovereignty. We have words that are gentle and when we're not anxious for anything but we're praying all our concerns with thankfulness unto God. And then verse 7 comes in. And then the peace of God which surpasses all understandings will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See that? Two things and we'll close about this peace. Number one, it's a divine peace. God alone gives it to you. Our, our minds cannot even fathom the supernatural peace. He says, surpassing all understanding, which means it goes, it goes beyond anything we ask, on anything we can imagine. It excels and surpasses everything we possibly hope for. It comes from God himself. First uh, John 14, peace I leave you, Jesus said. My peace I give to you. Not what the world gives you. Let your hearts not be troubled. It's God who invades the soul. Isaiah 26, 3 you keep 
in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he or she trusts in you. It's not only a divine peace, God alone, trusting God, it's a defending peace. We'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard is to keep watch. It's a military term, to keep in custody, to protect a camp or a castle. Paul doesn't say that prayer will keep us from having problems, but when we pour our burdens onto him, we can have peace in the midst of that as, 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 as uh, it becomes a garrison for our souls, a peace of God, like a Roman soldier watching over us. When God's peace floods our lives, when God's peace comes into our lives, it defends, it guards our hearts and our minds against anxious thoughts and fears. When God's peace floods our lives, it will protect and defend our hearts against worry. The enemy can't attack. The enemy can't get in when God's peace defends and protects us. Prayerful people make peaceful people. So while you got your workout done, you can you know, get whatever you do to, to deal with your stress and anxieties, I'm all for that. But the bottom line is this kind of peace is a divine peace, a defending peace. How do you get it? You First, you get it by knowing the Prince of Peace. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can you have that kind of peace is what Paul's talking about. You see, you need peace with God before you can have the peace of God. Peace with God comes through the perfect life, the absorbing toning sacrifice of Jesus as he reconciles us who were once enemies because of our sin and we have peace with God. Then the peace of God could come into our lives. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to try to get this peace is is pointless because this peace only happens when you first have peace with God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Then you have the peace of God who fills our hearts as we give him over our burdens over to him. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And when you have peace with God, then you can embrace, contain, enjoy the divine and defending peace of God. But maybe you're a believer here this morning and you need to fight anxiety with prayer. With prayer and trusting in God and the promise of God. We're going to take communion in a moment. Ricky's going to come up and lead us. Trust him today. Are you trusting him today? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you're riddled with anxieties and fears of the future. And you see, you know, as I'm doing that, I'm walking further and further away from faith. I'm I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned. I'm saying that 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 anxiety and that riddle, that that fear that just grips our soul, the anxiety that freezes us up. The antidote is prayer. Trusting God. As we take communion together, we stand firm. We can stand firm when we agree in the Lord. We can stand firm when we choose to rejoice in the Lord. We can stand firm when we make known our attitude of reasonableness in the presence of Christ. We can stand firm when we choose not to be anxious but to trust and to pray and to place our burdens on him with thanksgiving. And we can stand firm when our hearts and minds are guarded by God himself the Prince of Peace. So if you know Christ Jesus, I invite you to grab this cup and remember the work of the gospel. Remember the work of the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to take the cup. And remember, the, this white wafer 
is symbolic of the body of Christ. His life was given to you. His life was broken. His, his body was broken for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and to bring you into a reconciled fatherly relationship with God. The blood was shed so that you can have forgiveness of sins. If you never trusted Christ, now's the time. Put a curtain around your heart. If you trusted Christ and, you're, and you find yourself anxious, give it over to the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, there may be some here that don't know you, trying to seek peace in places that they'll never, ever have and never, ever really will get. And Father, we pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see the greatness and beauty of Jesus who bore our sins on a cross, who was buried and rose again to bring us into a, a, a perfect relationship by grace through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and we can have peace with you. And Father, there may be some here that are, are really struggling with anxiety. Lord, we pray they get the help that they need. We want to be a, a church that's helpful. But we also recognize that we need to cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And this communion time together is, is a clear example of your love for us, that you're willing to send your son as an atoning sacrifice. And that, Lord, nothing can happen to us outside of your providence and sovereign will. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. It's all of your kindness. So, Father, as we eat of this bread and remembering the death of Jesus, we drink this cup, remembering the blood that we shed, we choose to rejoice in the gospel. And we choose not to be anxious, but to turn our anxieties over to you because you care for us. So help us as we respond in faith, trusting you, Lord, in this moment, in this day, and in our, all our futures, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.